This is Adam Lippy, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is an interview with Billy Corbin, the director of Cocaine Cowboys 1 and 2, Limelight, Square Grouper, which he was promoting with this interview recorded a couple months ago, Raw Deal, and The U, which is relevant because he's the current go-to talking head whenever they need to interview anyone about the current scandal going on at Miami University since he already made a documentary on that very subject for ESPN's 30 for 30 series. A few notes, whenever Billy refers to Alfred, he's referring to Alfred Spellman, who is his producing partner. All of the other jokey references that I may make to some of his films, if you're hearing this on iTunes, go to regrettablesincere.com and go to this particular article where this audio file is hosted, and there'll be images that explain everything. The topics in the interview include how those 30 for 30s are put together, what's it like to make a documentary that's less valued because it's not about politics or dead babies. And he pretty well explains something that's always confused me, which is why Magnolia movies go to the theater at all. If it's going to be on TV a couple nights before it opens on HDNet movies, they'll come out at the same time at, on DVD, pay-per-view, on-demand, etc., meaning that no one ever goes to the theater to see them. So he explains this in a rational manner, which was a first. And uh, a number of other topics. There was quite a rhythm to most of this conversation. So please enjoy. So I think the most important question to you is if you're a manatee hugging son of a bitch. <laughs> that I'm not. I, I, I love manatees. Uh, medium rare. Manatee fritters are one of my I got a pair of manatee skin boots. I'm making all of this up. Well, you I'm know, I run man- I run a, a film series called Medium Rare Cinema, so I would appreciate. Oh, it. Well, well, that that's how I like my manatees. The, okay. the way you like your the way you like your cinema. Right. <laughs> that's how I like my manatees. No, I, I, I in fact, you know, it's funny. Jimmy Buffett watched the movie mm-hmm. because we needed his permission. Right. To use Pirate Looks at Forty, you know, the get the publishing on Pirate Looks at Forty, and he really only needed to watch that part of the movie. He wound up, I think, watching the whole movie, and of course, the only part he needed to watch. You know, the, the, it is prefaced with that line, right. which is one of the funniest lines in the movie. It's not the funniest line in the movie. It's not the best line in the movie. And we heard back, Jimmy watched the movie, mm-hmm. loved it, and will give us permission to use the song. And his favorite line was, even though Jimmy Buffett's a manatee-hugging son of a bitch, we still like this song. That was, <laughs> and, that was, and they specifically cited that. So, so he heard it, he laughed, and he, he signed off uh, on the approval for us, and we're very grateful for it. <laughs> Now, uh, one of the things that I did, and I tend to do this uh, when I can, is that I watch a movie with uh, wireless headphones, so I can walk around and I can hear. And I don't, you know, if a movie doesn't have subtitles, like screeners don't, then I'm not going to miss anything because you never know, like if there's mumbly anything or not. But what I noticed watching all of your movies again, I had seen everything but Square Grouper before, and what I noticed is that you do the Spike Lee thing, which is fine, which is that you never have one second. Where there isn't music, yeah. music Without playing. Music? Yes. Yeah. Is that a? It, what is that based in? Because some of the stuff I felt would work better if you just heard them talking. I know it's you know I know the the you know the subject matter that you're you're covering isn't necessarily you know going to appeal to those who like quiet moments, which yeah. you shouldn't take as a negative because I you know I get it. But um, what what's the reason behind filling every second with music? Well, it's not. In fact, I think that the, the most silence that we've ever had in any of our movies comes during the Black Tuna, a uh, certain stretch, small stretches, albeit uh, 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 in during the Black Tuna segment. It's you know there's a there's a, a great pastime uh, 
uh, that we got down in, uh, in South Florida. You go to a, uh, a dockside dive bar. <clears throat> it's a favorite of mine. You go to a dockside dive bar and you, you sit down next to an old timer, you know, get the stool next to him and you strike, strike up a conversation three hours and, and a lot of whiskey later, you've just heard the life story of a notorious smuggler or a deposed third world leader or, <laughs> or, uh, or, you know, a corrupt politician or, you know, and this is kind of the, and, and, and that was the vibe I was going for with the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's it, the, the the, the the right music you know it sets the tone and you just felt like you spent you know ninety minutes you know having a drink at a bar with 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 these guys hearing about their piratey tales you know nostalgic tales of of potholing in Miami in the seventies and that was just the overall aesthetic and that you know we we, we call the company our company Rack and Tour you know and we're like a slave to story when it comes to when it comes to aesthetic and style it's not like let's impose our style necessarily on the movie so much as how can we adapt our style to best fit the subject matter in this case it was you know it wasn't cocaine it was it was marijuana we wanted to give that 70s you know a a, a rednecky that's the thing i mean it, it, it was during the 70s that miami started to change into the you know the latin city that everybody knows knows it as today but 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 for that it was it was an anglo town it was a southern you know, redneck or, or, or waspy Anglo town, and and so we wanted to also create a kind of time capsule as well of that time, and and the music uh, played a a big part of that. I mean, you know, the Alfred calls it the you know the Jimmy Buffetty kind of a era of of South Florida. So that 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 was the the intent. Well, what I meant is that in all your films you do it, even Raw Deal, the music yeah. never stops. And while you know, I did obviously refer to it as irresponsible. I was joking, but... <laughs> Listen, not the first time I've heard that, so... <laughs> um, I was half-joking, I'll, I'll admit, that I do think okay. that there so are always, moments always that are responsible. Always truth and sarcasm, and with the and during that most of that third act where we focus on the videotape footage, mm-hmm. there is there is no music there. It's just the music that's on the tape. So truth be told, Raw Deal actually does contain probably the largest stretch of any of our movies without music. The problem is, of course, the vi- not the problem, but the thing is the videotape has its own music attached to it, mm-hmm. and so we you know we didn't compete with that. But that might be almost I mean that's over twenty minutes without any score whatsoever that we added to, to the movie in, in, in Raw Deal. If I told you that that's the most powerful and effective stuff you've done, would you be insulted? What is? That I think that that last section in Raw Deal is, is, is more powerful than almost anything else you've done? Well, thank you. No, I, I, I appreciate that. No, I'm not trying to insert, hey, you didn't put music on it, and that's why it works. No, it was more, it was more like that you let it breathe, because obviously the footage that you have is so great that... You don't need to editorialize because I got afraid that you would you would do what they did in um, what was it Jesus Camp, which I ended up turning off thirty five minutes in because yeah, I, I I honestly didn't get too far into it either. I turned it off because I'm like, all right, I already agree with you. Why are you playing horror movie music? <laughs> you don't have to turn this into scary. Scary would be just listening to them talk. So why you know why that's editorializing? Well, so I always worry that when that happens, like something where it's inherently interesting. You know, you don't need to. You can trust the audience. There aren't a lot of people who who can sit through a documentary who who can't handle no music. I I understand what you're saying, and I think there's great there's great examples of, of that too. Not, not and not just in documentaries or in or in films. You know, I I mean, I, the fact that someone could, if it was done a little bit differently, you could sit through something like Jesus Camp, and 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 the people who are in it will love it, and people like us will go, oh my God, these people are petrifying. You know right. what I mean? You know. You, you, you can accomplish that. I, you know, I, yeah, I've seen that. And, and you're right. The, the, certainly the intent with Raw Deal was to be extremely 
objective because it was such a controversial mm-hmm. subject matter. That was not necessarily the intent with with subsequent right. projects, obviously. And and Cooking Cowboys is a gangster movie. Right. We didn't we didn't approach it as a documentary. We didn't see it as we saw it's you know it's a gangster movie. You know, we have a friend and, and and he describes our genre of movies as pop docs. Yeah, D O P D O C S. We make pop docs. We don't make you know, we don't make Jesus camp, you know, we, we, <laughs> whether, so, so it's like, and, and we, and we sit out, you know, on these projects and say, okay, what is this about? What can we do to, to, to enhance the, the story and, and hopefully make nonfiction a little bit more accessible to people who might not necessarily otherwise off outside of like reality TV, you know, would, would indulge or partake in, in, in docs, you know, nonfiction cinema. But in that sense though, I mean, and since you often get picked up by Magnolia, that and that's a much smaller audience who they reach based on their 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 process of day and date and like simultaneously on HGNet movies and in the theater and on demand, you know, all at the same time, and then maybe a DVD is released like two months later. You you're still reaching a very specific audience, and that audience is going to tend to be people who already like documentaries, right? Oh no, I I don't. I mean, Cooking Cowboys uh, didn't reach. I mean, he reached that. I mean, actually, that audience, by and large, uh, rejected it. You know, I mean, people who tend to to consume docs. I, I, actually, that's not fair. That's a mischaracterization. It, it, it was, but it wasn't exactly. You know, for the film forum set. If right. you hear what I'm screaming, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it's it's not for for people who you know the more pretentious of the of the indie film world. You know, it's definitely not. And uh, we got discovered on the streets. That's where the movie was discovered. It was the bootlegging phenomenon that happened in the summer prior to our theatrical release mm-hmm. months before it it started popping up in barber shops at flea markets literally the underground economy that exists in the inner city in every inner city and, and in miami same and we discovered this when a guy who works for us went to the barber shop to get his hair cut and it was playing the dvd was playing on all their televisions uh this is three months prior to magnolia's theatrical release of the movie this is the summer of, of 06 mm-hmm. And they're we're like, where'd you get it? And they're like, got it a couple, you know, a few weeks ago at the flea, and we play every day. We come and we open the barbershop, we press play, and we play it on a loop all day, every single day. And guys in there know it by heart; they've seen it six hundred times. And, and it's, it was a finished cut, at least. Hopefully, you didn't get some work plan. I don't, rem- I don't remember at that point. It, it, it apparently the bootlegging had gone on for several months and had encompassed several different versions. Uh, incomplete and eventually complete versions mm-hmm. of the movie, and we're like, holy shit! And we we were like, we were right in the middle of, um, and what are you gonna do? You're gonna you, you, you're gonna do what they do now, and and you know, like producers of the Hurt Locker and sue these people and alienate you know, alienate anybody who might like your movie. Yeah, it's a terrible. You know, these these are the consumers of your product. Mm-hmm. These are your these are your fans. They're not bootlegging shit they don't like. They're bootlegging what they like because mm-hmm. they like it, and they're telling their friends about it, and they're sending it to friends. They're downloading it to watch. They are consumers of your movie. If you can't figure out how to convert those people into paying customers in some way, whether it's buying a movie or buying a you know a, a DVD or buying a, a T-shirt or or, or paying to, to 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 paying to see your next movie, if you can't figure out, then your business model's fucked. Right. You know what I, I mean? That's the bottom line. So if you can't figure out how to convert those fans, because those people are fans, they are consumers of your product. You, if you can't figure that out, then you you're not gonna you're not gonna make a creative business model out of suing those people. So we were actually shooting at that time in 06. We were shooting a, a web series called Clubland. It's on at clublandmiami.com. It was this verite piece of a web series for a uh, vodka company about the opening of this new lounge on, on South Beach. And so we had crews working in the field every day. So w- one day during a half day, I sent them to the barber shop and to the flea 
um, the cattle market, the healthy flea market, we call it the flea. I said, interview these folks, and we're going to go online to this wacky place called YouTube. And <laughs> at the, you know, we were like, oh, this is cool. Uh, we're going to do this little web series, doc series, called Streets of Miami, the Cocaine Cowboys Phenomenon. And it's going to be these little short docs intercut with, with footage from the movie ahead of the release of the commercial release of the movie, talking about this bootleg phenomenon of the movie and why people like it and what their favorite lines are and what the movie's all about and how it's caught on like wildfire in the streets and it's spread all over. They hear about it from people in Chicago and in, in Brooklyn and Queens. And, and so we, we started to do that. And then some of the local uh, hip-hop uh, superstars in Miami, Pitbull, Trick Daddy, Cool and Dre, some producers, DJ Khaled, the, the biggest names in, in hip-hop in Miami and are known in the hip-hop community around the country. They heard we were doing this. Oh, uh, uh, Nori, formerly Noriega. They wanted to do their own bits for it they, because they wanted to get the credit for being the early adopters and turning everybody on to it and because it was cool. They wanted to be associated uh, with the Cocaine Cowboys name. So we wind up with these with this series, Streets of Miami, the Cocaine Cowboys phenomenon, this series of little viral videos, which essentially amount to celebrity-endorsed commercials for the movie. Long-form, they're long-form commercials, because they're not 30 seconds, they were like two, three minutes, set to, the, set to a song of one of these guys, with them going on and on and on about the movie, intercut with scenes in the movie, their favorite lines from the movie, how many times they've seen the movie, who turned them on to it, how they turned everybody else onto it. And I think by now we've got, we've got almost like two million views of all of these uh, in aggregate which were nothing more than commercials for the movie. And what happened was, when Cooking Cowboys was finally commercially released on DVD in January of 2007, you know, conventional wisdom, and I don't have to tell you this, is that, you know, you're never going to sell more units of a DVD than you do that first week, you know? that you know, It's the opening weekend mentality, you know? So, you know, you make a hardcore press. Magnolia, I think, the original, they originally produced 20,000 units. I think for almost the first 12 months, they told us, each month, they sold more units than the month before for almost the first 12 months. And they, they would wind up doing over eight times, running over eight times as many units as they did in preparation for the first week. Day one, Amazon doubled their order. I mean, this is the Tuesday it was released on DVD in January of 07. Day one, Netflix doubled their order. They couldn't keep up with, uh, with the demand. I mean, eventually it was on Showtime. It became Showtime's, I think, highest rated uh, documentary programming. Uh, when they came back to do a deal, they wanted to extend their 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 license, their window for it, and get do a deal for Cocaine Cowboys too. They told uh, Magnolia, they said it's not only our highest rated documentary programming of all time, it also outrates some of our star vehicles. So those are movies that they paid a premium on. Are you really <laughs> suggesting that 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 your movie uh, got better ratings than Pimps Up, Hose Down? Because I have, I can't believe that. I, I love, well, for, for, no, no, I, I think, well, no, 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 Pimps Up, Hose Down is, is HBO. Dude, I was being, I, I was being facetious anyway, dude, so. Dude, I, no, no one can compete with the high quality and, and, and social value of, of uh, Pimps Up, Hose Down, of real sex, of, when, when, when I turn on, uh, when I turn on HBO and I see a woman teaching a, a half-naked couple how to put a condom onto a dildo using her mouth, I'm like, this is... I'm like, we're on the wrong line of work. We're on the wrong line of work. And, uh, well, I think what that shows you is that you don't have to be talented or even creative to um, get ratings. Uh, this is, that is our mantra <laughs> right. at Raconteur, dude. That is, our, that's, that, is a, that is on a poster on our wall. No, but I, Cocaine I, Cowboys, you know, just, it, it became a kind, of, a kind of phenomenon. And I really believe it was driven by that bootleg culture, you know, that underground 
that underground economy the uh, and, and the bootleg movement that that really got behind the movie and so forth. I think that that for us at that moment in time, uh, you know, I don't know if that would still be true now, but at that moment in time, I don't think there's any doubt that it helped to drive it. It, it, it translated somehow into legitimate sales. Well, is is that why Cocaine Cowboys Two was was created? I mean, I know that it, there was a fifteen minute documentary on the first DVD. Oh yeah, the bonus feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, you just um, expanded it using a lot of the same footage, and then well, whatever no, we else re-shot, you had. We reshot Charles Cosby's interview from scratch. We went out to Oakland mm-hmm. for the for the for the DVD bonus feature. We put him in a hotel room in Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And just shot a quick interview for about an hour. But we went and spent like three days in Oakland with him when we shot Cocaine Cowboys Two. That was a fan response movie. Um, I mean, literally, we just got a deluge of emails and, you know, I guess in, in those days, MySpace messages. You remember the MySpace? It's like a lost civilization now. It's like Atlantis. And then we started meeting, like, we started meeting people who loved our movie, like Pharrell Williams and Janet Jackson. We hung out with Janet Jackson a lot while she was recording her album in Miami a few years ago. And she was a huge Cooking Cowboys fan. And all she wanted to know about and hear more about was Griselda Blanco, the godmother, the godmother, the godmother. And so we said, okay, well, how, what's the best way, short of tracking down uh, La Madrina and going to Bogota and shooting an interview, what's the, best, what's the best vessel to tell, you know, to give more details and to tell her story? And Charles was, was the, sort of was the best way to do it because, you know, he, he was her confidant. And uh, when, when you've got nothing else to do in prison but, but tell your story to someone, uh, he, he knew a lot of the, um, the details that we, could, that we could verify about her, her life story beyond what was in the first movie. And had kind of a cool story of, 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 of his own that was very much a 90s... You know, if Grand Theft Auto Vice City is the pop culture you know, video game aesthetic reference for Cocaine Cowboys 1, then San Andreas... Is CC two, you know, you know what I mean? It's that, you know, it's that, it's that nineties, you know, that 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 absolute genre of nineties West Coast crack slinging movies we saw, starting with Boys uh, in the Hood. That was a fan response movie. Uh, you know, went directed DVD. Uh, it was a low budget directed DVD sequel. I have no qualms about about that. That's what it was. And has it was just on Showtime, I think, last night. Has been hugely popular on Showtime. Well, your well. honesty is refreshing on that matter because well, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it was a fan response movie. And, mm-hmm. You know, people wanted to know more about Griselda Blanca. This was the this was uh, we thought the the, the the most entertaining, colorful, and fastest way that we could. That this we could this was your on, snakes on, on a plane, is what you're saying. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is it because uh, Charles is black? Is that why? Yeah, that's that exactly why? what I was. It was, it was, it was a racial accusation. <laughs> was Absolutely. Now, how do you? I guess you know. In in the end, it doesn't really matter. But you know, Cocaine Cowboys is clearly derived, you know, stylistically and in some ways from Scarface, and also time period is similar. Um, you know, the Pacino one, obviously. But how do you feel about you know that you know you were endorsed you endorsed by the rap community and the hip hop community? But they're the same community that seemed to misunderstand that the second half of Scarface showed what an um, impotent idiot he was. I don't know that they misunderstand that. I don't know that. I don't know that that's true. That he's not someone I, to emulate or, or anything like that. Like I just I just screened a movie called Golden Balls by Bigas Luna, and uh, with Javier Bardem in the lead. And Javier Bardem is basically playing. If someone misunderstood Scarface completely, he would try to do what Javier Bardem does during the movie. You know. <laughs> 
sounds cool, actually. It sounds like a good movie. It's a very entertaining movie, and it's way over the top, and it's, uh, you know, filled with the copious amounts of homoeroticism and and extremely unsubtle uh, sexual imagery that he likes, to, you know, that he put through in uh, Hamon Hamon and all his other films. He's like a, a straight version of Almodovar, but somehow the films are more homoerotic. I don't know how he manages it, but he, did, he does. But, you know, that whole movie plays about you know, it is like he he didn't get that that Tony Tony Montana is 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 not bright, has terrible taste. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't hire him as your interior decorator. No, 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 no. Uh, and his arrogance gets in the way, and that you know he's got a weird incestuous relationship with his sister, and you know all this other stuff. Like that's not something you know. Even as a drug dealer, he's he's. I think part of the problem has always been that. There's a, the movie is one of those up and down rags to you know rags to riches to rags stories and the problem is that we never see him at the top for more than that one five minute montage the pushes to the limit montage uh-huh. you know it's an hour and twenty minutes up an hour and twenty minutes down and five minutes in the middle and I think maybe if there had been a little bit more exploration I mean if you're making a three hour movie and you've only got five minutes in the middle your second act basically right. five minutes long. <laughs> there's that's that's sort of a structural problem but. Uh, would would that have helped? And how do you feel about like you know? Yes, I realize that Cocaine Cowboys is almost not possible without the Scarface culture. But at the same time, yeah, that that is a fact. Not almost. That is a fact. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, but how do you like? How do you gauge that? I mean, you know, do, do they not understand that like their their endorsing of crime is kind of you know that the rap culture's endorsing of this film seems wildly well, hypocritical based on the fact that, that they're, they're all rich. I don't think that there is uh, a, a movie with a greater message of crime doesn't pay mm-hmm. than, than Scarface does. What you're suggesting, not suggesting, what you said was that mm-hmm. you know that hip hop audience really doesn't watch it any further for lessons after the first <laughs> after the first half. Oh, um, I don't. I don't I, even think there's like a lot of. Le- I mean, Oliver Stone wrote the movie, and Oliver Stone, especially in that period, subtlety has never been his specialty. And, you know, he, yes, he can't write women, and yes, you know, he, especially during that period, like with that and um, 8 Million Ways to Die, like he just engages in people cursing at each other and screaming at each other. Well, the movie was also impeccably researched. I mean, Oliver Stone went to Miami. He spent some time in Miami. He, 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 he was, he, let's say, nose deep in it, so to speak. Uh, and I, I, he, he captured so many, so many realistic details of the drug trade and of the lifestyle and, and intricate details that, that if you hadn't been there, I don't know that you would have observed. I mean, the Paradise Lost covers there, the bankers there. Oh, I agree. Um, I just wish that, I wish that the casting agent hadn't chickened out and, and cast a bunch of white guys playing, you know, Cubans well, I mean, and Jews yeah, that, playing that, Cubans that, and, you know. Yeah, that, that's, that's a total, but then we wouldn't have that, that iconic accent, Cuban accent, you know, from him or Robert Loggia or the right. Italian woman, Nuria Elizabeth Antonio. but, you know, we would have missed out on all of well, that. Well, iconic, is, iconic, does that mean ridiculous? Is that, is that what we're going for? I, I, you know what, I, he, 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 he captured something there. I mean, that sneer, that scar, mm-hmm. that ridiculous, noisy, you know, like shirt in the opening, mm-hmm. I mean, that was, that was the dichotomy of, of Miami in that era, the sleepy you know, retirement village and, and, and family-friendly tourist destination, and, and then the invasion of, of, you know, the criminal population of the Marielitos that came over and, and literally wrought havoc. On, no, no, uh, I agree, I agree uh, that the production elements are great. I just don't think the screenplay is, nor is the acting particularly oh, believable. I think, yeah. that, I think that screenplay is, is, is its own insane masterpiece. 
like, and I'm not saying it like it's Chinatown, you right. know, <laughs> but I just think it is like it is it is its own spectacular work of pop art, mm-hmm. you know, is 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 what it is. Not everybody's into that, and I, I, I certainly appreciate that. But I think it's this sort of insane. You know, I think it's the it's the work of a madman. You know, in in, in a you know, it's like a it's almost like Gonzo screenwriting. You know? right. <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, you know, like Salvador, which I've always felt is is Oliver Stone's best film. I think he got that what he was going for if he had directed Scarface and was able to get what maybe De Palma wasn't necessarily interested in. I think it would have resembled Salvador more if he, if you know, which is... Well, the, the fact that they were still able to create what they did with Scarface mm-hmm. and make it as incredibly accurate mm-hmm. and, and on, you know, in terms of Miami and the time period that it was is, is a very impressive, is a very impressive feat. So you're right. It was not, it was not this, you know, documentary style no, no. Uh, Was it? You know, De Palma kind of, doesn't. <laughs> De Palma knows how to make movies about movies. That's not a. That's not a thing. Yeah, that, you know. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what he did. So I think that having been said, I think some of the best elements in the movie came from Oliver Stone's work. Okay, it's what I. It's really what I'm getting at. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, and not to mention that Oliver Stone still managed to to follow pretty impeccably the template of the Thirty Two original. You know, the story, mm-hmm. the relate, you know, the relationships, the the sister, the best friend, the right. rise and fall, the mother, the immigrants. I mean, he still managed to 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 conform to that template, which I guess was his mandate. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean? like, okay, take this, tell this story, but tell it in this milieu, in this in this universe, in this world. Basically, the same characters as well. That was a pretty. I thought that was pretty. Uh, that was an. That was an achievement in and of itself. And the achievement that he had on Eight Million Ways to Die and setting it in Los Angeles. That's an achievement in and of itself. Because <laughs> you obviously Eight Million Ways to Die is a New York reference. But so I, I know that you probably don't get these sorts of questions, but um, I'm going to ask about Raw Deal because, as I said before, it fascinated me, and I wanted to interview you five years ago about it. So I'm, I had to go back in time in my brain um, with Marty McFly and figure out exactly what questions I had wanted to ask then. Now, since I couldn't do that, I'm just going to go with what I wrote down yesterday, because that seems a little... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. You inserted yourself into the film, sort of Michael Moore style, but it didn't seem necessary. Was What was the reasoning behind that? Like, you, well, the I, footage I really... is totally powerful on its own. Without the I'm um, chasing the uh, you know DA stuff. I didn't I, I didn't really want to be in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. My 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 DP panicked and shot it wider than I wanted him to. Mm-hmm. It was really just supposed to be of the state attorney walking away from mm-hmm. the camera essentially. So the fact that I'm on you can see I'm not dressed to be on camera. Right. You know I had no intention of of being on camera. I'm not on camera anymore or at any other time in in in, in the movie there. You know, to, to to me, it was it was it was sort of the trial that, that that never was. It was it was here's this side of the story, here's that side of the story, here's some videotape evidence that would be presented by both a prosecutor and a defense attorney, showing you both sides, audience as jury, discuss. You know, and so the the, the camera was more the eye of, of of the jury. So I didn't want you know it wasn't supposed to be documenting me, or wasn't supposed to be my, you know my journey to the truth. You know, and and again, it's evidenced by you know my only appearing in that one brief segment. I felt that it was a very clunky and unsophisticated way that 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 Rod Smith's office had dealt with with us. Mm-hmm. In that I think he he was he is an expert politician. He would have acquitted himself with a plum had he just sat down and, and given us 15 minutes of his time. He had a, a company line 
uh, in terms of why he made the decisions that he made at the time that he made them. And I think he would have been he would have been just fine had he done that. Well, maybe um, he was wise though, because what you did a great job of is making sure that anyone who sat in front of the camera looks absolutely horrible and sleazy. Well, uh, and 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 I and and so does he. Yes. Too. Now, I mean, I I felt that he had an obligation. I'm a taxpayer in in, in the state of Florida, and I felt that he, as an elected official, uh, especially one meeting out justice and making decisions about the, the people's future freedoms and liberties, should answer to us. I don't think he should be turning down any legitimate interview opportunities, and and they did it in such a disingenuous way. Their position was, we don't discuss closed cases. It's like, wait, I thought you don't discuss... I'm sorry, there's positions we don't discuss open cases, because an open investigation is an open investigation. Then they don't discuss closed cases anymore because it's a closed case, it's over and done with. I'm like, so you don't talk about anything ever? Because I've seen Rod Smith appear on 650 hours of, of television documentaries about the Danny Rowling case, which he successfully prosecuted and got the death penalty for a serial killer, which, by the way, a manatee could have successfully prosecuted Danny Rowling and gotten the death penalty because on the first day of trial, he, he changed his his plea to guilty, and they moved immediately for the death penalty phase, Rod Smith could have gotten up, bent over, tied his shoe, and, and rested, and they, and the, uh, they would have... Uh, he would Wait, have he, the, death he, the guy changed his plea to guilty, and they still got him the chair? Well, they, they went right to the penalty phase. I mean, he, 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 he didn't... There wasn't a plea, bar, plea bargain. There was no agreement. He, cha- he, he, he pled guilty to murdering four co-eds and, and, and one of their roommates. In, he was known as the Gainesville Ripper. He was a horrendous horrendous criminal. I mean, you could not have found, you could not find an anti-death penalty a proponent who would not have gladly pulled the switch on the electric chair to kill mm-hmm. Danny Rowling. This was a very, very bad, this was a poster boy. So he just had a, he just had a bad attorney who said, why don't you plead guilty? And no, 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 no. I don't, I don't, I don't, no, no, I don't even believe his attorney knew about it. The mm-hmm. guy was a fucking lunatic. The guy just got up in court and said, I'm guilty. Okay. It's over. I'm changing my plea. You know, fuck everything. I'm, I'm guilty. I did it. So Rod, Rod Smith appeared in every documentary about that that anybody ever <laughs> ever wanted to do. It's just that that case made him look like a, you know, a staunch defender of, of rights and justice. And I, I don't think that's up to him. He can't make that. He's a, he, he works for us. He cannot make the decision to just appear in, a, in, 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 in documentaries about cases that, that, that he thinks he looks good. and can't, so He can't do that. That was not up to him. So we staked him out outside of his office and waited for him inevitably to come out of the door. When he did come out of the door, it closed behind him and locked. So instead of, I guess, swiping his, his ID card, you know, his key card or entering a code or whatever, he thought the path of least resistance would be to simply walk around the entire block, the long way around, in fact, of the building, which gave us, you know, I think even more kind of compelling footage. I mean, the, the note, and, and it was emblematic of the fact that for the most part, people did not want to talk about this case. They did not want to talk about this case, and it took a lot of persuasion to get Lisa and Tony, the two people, you know, the two sides of the story that did talk about the case, to talk about the case the way they did. You mentioned watching 650 hours of, of footage. Considering the way that your films are made, uh, do you feel that you owe your entire career to, to the file footage section of a like film library? You're talking about the archival footage? Yeah, basically that you have so many news clips in all of your films, which is fine. Yeah. But but it's yeah. it's a, it seems like a style choice that you have so much old news footage. Yeah. Like I saw Bernie Goldberg in one of the clips. I don't remember which movie Absolutely. I was even watching. Yeah. Actually, it looked like he was in his bar mitzvah suit. He was yes. like so young he, uh, yes, in, that, he did. in that shot. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a conscious decision. I mean, it, it, you know, to a certain extent, these are you know, multimedia found footage kinds of uh, endeavors. 
you know, these, these documentaries. And, 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 and we're in a very interesting era right now. 1979, when the Dadeland shooting happened, you know, at the beginning of Cooking Cowboys, mm-hmm. I spoke to news reporters. Uh, we spoke to, actually to a, to a cameraman who said, I remember that so well. He goes, not just because of the shooting, because it was so insane. He said, but that was the first, that was the summer. It was like, that was one of the first stories I went out and covered with our new video cameras. That was their switch from film to video mm-hmm. at the local news level there. And what's interesting about that is that the footage that we're, you know, like the three-quarter tapes and beta, and, and as we gather that material for research purposes and start to watch it, the tapes are deteriorating. They're literally falling apart. Right. You know, and, and these were local news stations that had a news cycle just like yours. You, you post shit every single day that you can, but you have a digital archive on an ongoing basis. These guys put it on a tape and put it on a shelf somewhere, unconcerned how long it would last or if it would last forever or, or if there would be an archive of it. And there is no digital archive of it. It's whatever is on that tape in whatever condition that it's on that tape. And we started to discover as we you know, are doing these docs about the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s that this stuff will at some point be lost time. And so when we, when we find this great footage, we really do feel, you know, a, a pressing need to, to preserve it in some way and, and hope that others will also have the same appreciation and the same enthusiasm when you get to see, oh, look, it's Bernie Goldberg, you know, look, at you know, Cooking Cowboys 1. It's like, wait a second, is that, you know, Katie Couric as, a, as an anchor in local Miami news? And what the hell is happening with her hair there? You know, I mean, like, you know, like, and, we have a we get a big kick out of that, and we appreciate that, and 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 hope that other people will as well. But we tell historical, you know, uh, we make document historical documentaries, and so uh, we're obviously going to use the historical uh, record to, to 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 best tell them. You know, we weren't there in 1979, 1980 at the Black Tuna trial to uh, to shoot it ourselves, so we have to rely on the material. We weren't there at the uh, 43 Star Island at the uh, Ethiopian Zion Coptic Churches mansion, which is now the address of Rosie O'Donnell on Star Island. She lives in that property. Not the same house. They knocked down the house, obviously, but, but uh, rebuilt it. But Rosie O'Donnell lives with the Coptics, uh, the Coptics address. And we weren't there to get, you know, the, the children smoking the sacrament to God, as was, uh, you know, Mark Potter, who is a, a local a correspondent at the time at, uh, I think, PLG, Channel 10, ABC affiliate. And Dan Rather came down as a result of those stories and did his CBS, you know, it's his uh, 60 Minutes piece on them and you know so obviously there's a there's a great reliance on on that type of material but but we also you know feel as though in addition to being documentarians we're we're archivists in a way of 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 that stuff so one of my least favorite directors is todd phillips because he seems that he doesn't quite understand who he is in his own movie and i think it's best exemplified in frat house where he inserts himself into the third act of the movie Uh uh-huh you guys make similar films. I know you're not going to say, well, what are you talking about? He makes broad comedies. But in the feel of the, the sort of slobs and snob stuff, but not, but still like not quite figuring out who the slob is and who the snob is and whose side we're exactly on. Uh-huh. You, you do a better job of, of uh, delineating that, but not he doesn't really. When you see a movie like, and I just, I'll, I'll that preliminary question. Uh, when you see a movie like Frat House, like how does that, like knowing... Because Frat House and Raw Deal share a lot of stuff because they're both about frats. They're both about, like, lawsuits and, you know, troubling things. Have you seen Frat House? I did. I saw it, like, on bootleg VHS 
probably around the time we were working on Raw Deal, right? Would that timing sound right? I mean, it's yeah, just sure. Like I mean, projected. I, everyone has seen it on 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 bootleg VHS. I think that's the only way you can see it. Yeah, at this point. I think Sheila, Sheila Nivens though had just like recently at that time had just recently you know uh, shelved it. You know, whatever the, the, the story was, if I recall at the time, and, and I did see it, but I haven't seen it for, I mean, we're talking about 10 years at least. Right. So go back in time and remember okay. what you thought like that day, 10 years. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> now, please take apart Todd Phillips. Go. <laughs> well, I, I listen, I, I, I only know the, the sort of myths and legends surrounding that, mm -hmm. you know, that film and, and, uh, and of course, what happened to it subsequently at, uh, at HBO, which basically is that Sheila Nivens got in the middle of the night, drove out to stat to an abandoned lot in Staten Island with a shovel or a, you know whatever, or a bulldozer, dug a big hole in the ground and buried the movie there, uh, blissfully not before you know the VHS uh, bootlegs uh, started to uh, uh, circulate. Is that movie um, like a cautionary tale for all younger documentarians making movies about frats? I think so, but I think that the, the, the lack of of knowledge about what actually went down and, and we, we met Todd years ago he was in Miami writing uh, Miami Beach writing a script and, and, and chatted with him uh, a, a little bit about the experience he, he spoke more on the experience of, of working with Sheila Nivens and HBO than, 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 than the actual making uh, of the movie he, he defended in many ways the integrity mm -hmm. uh, of, of the project he was a cool enough guy I'm inclined to take his uh take his word for it. Oh, but I mean, what, I think it's irrelevant whether or not he made it up or not. I always had a problem with the yeah. fact that he put himself in the third act because he didn't have a third act. Well, listen, what what movie has a third act anymore, dude? That, I mean, nobody, yes. nobody knows how to land a movie anymore. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the challenge that we all... Lucky for us on the Square Grouper, you know, we had three separate stories, so the right. third act was just the last story. We just said, okay, the end. You right. know, in, in, who, okay, who died? Who are we, who are we gonna, you know... Who is who? We're seeing in memoriam here, you know. Right. <laughs> like, let's just let's just put the, uh, you know, let, let's just wrap this fucker up, you know. Other, you know, so we had that advantage. But I, that's a great challenge when you're trying to when you're trying to shape a story is, is, is how to end the thing. Yes, I, for me personally, I, I I hope that that I'll never get to the point where fuck. You know what we should do here? Just put the camera on me, and I'm gonna just talk to the camera. It's like, right. thank you for watching. I think what we've learned today watching this movie is, yeah, I I, I would hope that, or, or I leap in into frame or, or, or anything like that happens. It's also different, you know, shooting a verite movie is also different from shooting a, uh, you know, a, a historical doc as, as we do. We tend to, we, we, we're you know, much more prone to be invisible and the process is much, you, you can't see the seams hopefully a, a, as much. But listen, look at the, uh, the Maisels. I mean, they're all over Great Gardens, for right. example, to, to the point that when they adapted that, I think it was an HBO movie, actually, mm -hmm. with Jessica Lange and, uh, and, and Drew Barrymore. Right. When they or Showtime, I can't, I can't remember. But when they adapted it, the Maisels were characters in the movie, you know, in the scripted movie, you know, and, and the relationship dynamic between them and, and their subjects was a part, of, not a major part, but as much as it was in the doc itself, you know, where they would appear in reflections and, and they would, you know, she would interact with David, you know, and everything. And, and Well, that's a little different you know, in terms of subject matter cause, because the material in itself, and I think I was, get, you know, you're you're not making political documentaries, and so often they're considered inessential. That's not a, again a diss, but Grey Gardens Thank couldn't you. be less. <laughs> Grey Gardens. I, 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 no, I'm going to put your, I'm going to put your quote right across the uh, 
the Scrub Grouper DVD box. Inessential viewing. That's what we're going <laughs> to... You know what I mean? Like what, you know... I know, dr- I hear you. you know, covering, but, you know, Grey Gardens is about two loons who, who are related to someone famous and living yeah. in a well, dilapidated well, what, what, house. What, I mean, what, it's not important. Well, what's Frat House? Well, what's Frat House about? And, and they were young guys who were covering mm-hmm. other young guys. And, you know, and, and, and I think you're right. I think, I think Act 3 was a struggle, as it often is for filmmakers, mm-hmm. especially unscripted films. And then they... Uh, I hope you're using quotes when you say unscripted there, and then, well, you know, I, I meant that there was no, there, there was no script with it, with it, with a preordained I know, uh, conclusion. I know. You know, they had, they had to go in and, and, and they had to craft an mm-hmm. ending. Right. And an ending they crafted. You might not like it. Mm-hmm. I might not like it. But you have to, you have to land the end. Uh, although the fact that nobody saw them, might as well have just ended it, you know, right in the middle of it. Right. <laughs> and that's it. Well, that's Garland, the, the, the co-director has gone on to make a lot of movies that are just like that sort of like fake documentary yeah. thing, like Virginity Hit and Last Exorcism and uh, Mail Order yeah. Bride. But truth be told, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, Raw Deal, like a lot. I mean, it's like our our lost movie, you know, and and it's been and it was ten years this January, this past January that that it premiered at. Uh, at Sundance, and, and it's really barely been heard from since, which I think is a shame, but but somehow, like, just lately, I mean, you, you know, you, you brought it up, and then uh, I, I got a call from this college in, in Florida, Kaiser University, who, who they had the DVD, and they were showing it to, like, they, they gathered, like, all these classes together, like, psychology classes, criminology classes, uh, victimology classes, showed them the movie, and then asked me to come and speak, like, out of the clear blue, and it's, it's just one of these movies that I, I feel like it's a shame that you know, every freshman class of every single university doesn't, they don't show this movie and have the, I mean, you know, we were having a cinematic discussion, but but doesn't have a substantive debate about the content, you know what I mean, about the, the issues that the movie's about, which, is, you know, which would be, be great. I remember when we did the Q&A at, at Sundance, and, and afterward, they, they literally had to, like, throw everybody out of the theater, because everybody just kept asking questions, we kept talking about it, and the filmmaker, like, the handler for our, our section, she was like, she was like, that was a really good Q&A. And I was like, how can you tell the difference? She goes, you know, and the first question is, and so how much did the movie cost? She said, but people are actually, people are actually engaged, you know, in, in, in questions about the, the subject matter. She says, that's a good Q&A. And, and she goes, and one that will not end. She goes, that's well, another, you know, people aren't leaving, so. Maybe they didn't ask that question because the answer would have been $50. I think, I don't have the final accounting in front of me, but plus or minus about, Twelve cents. You're probably correct. Yeah, I figure as much. I once made a movie for twenty five dollars, but it was short, so that doesn't count. <laughs> so we managed to we managed to feature doc for fifty. That's 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 not bad, I guess. Right. <laughs> Although I didn't count the change. It was mo- half of it was spent on uh, stage blood, so and a fake wig. Awesome. I, I feel like I feel like that's true of most short films. By the way, that the, that, that that's the single greatest line item is is stage blood, and the second is a wig. I was reading on your website uh, this whole thing about, you know, and we discussed Cocaine Cowboys coming from Scarface. Now you're going back in a circle, back to Michael Bay. <laughs> Is the dog chasing his own tail here? Is this some sort of Mobius loop that I don't understand? Well, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I, you mean, go... I, I, I get the Mobius loop, but I mean, well, why is Michael Bay full circle? Well, you go, you go from garish excess on a fiction oh, standpoint. Oh, I see, I Back to yeah. documentary, and then back to garish excess from a yes. fashion standpoint. I, I get, I get it. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. When Alfred and I were, I mean, it was always this was our, our kind of our dream when we had when we had Cocaine Cowboys. I was like, we were working on. I was like, shit. I was like, this would make such a great Showtime. I, I'm sorry, make such a great HBO dramatic series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Cocaine Cowboys. I said, God, we can make sequels, and we could do a, you know, copy of great photo book, and we can now it's like, all right, relax, one step at a time, you know, let's get the fucking movie done, you know, and if people dig it, then we can, 
hopefully two more. And, and we'd always kind of had our eye on making it a, a bit of a cottage industry. Alfred always says, uh, we, we are, our business operates like the Native Americans. We like to use the whole carcass, you know. <laughs> like we make use of sort of every, every component part of the stories we tell. And, and Cooking Cowboys was the beginning of that of that model. After Raw Hill premiered at Sundance, we could not get industry financing. I and mean, we thought like, wow, front page of the New York Post, bells of, anointed bells of the Sundance ball, we've got it made, we're going to be able why, to get, you know. This, we've, why were there no offers? Well, first of all, nobody got it. Nobody got it. We're pitching it. They're like, those days it was called City Made of Snow. Maybe if we had changed the title a little sooner, it would have helped. But mm-hmm. um, we changed the title at some point, and people still didn't get it. I mean, they're like, didn't we see this in Blow? Or like, it's a documentary. Isn't this just like Scarface? It's a documentary. And nobody fucking got it. I mean, nobody understood what we were trying to do. And I went back and I looked at the original treatment that we wrote for the movie. Mm-hmm. The movie we ultimately made is almost identical to that treatment. Well, you realize realize when you call something city made of snow and you bring it to Sundance, everyone's thinking, smell a sense of snow. Yeah, no, no, I don't know. We we had to, I I forget what what stage we were in development. We we, uh, changed the name, but, you know, after our experience with Raw Deal, we decided we needed to eat, you know, in addition to make documentaries. So uh, we we came up with a much, you know, schnazzier, cashier commercial title. But even still, nobody in the You know what? I always call it. My my greatest example is, you know, it's a. Hollywood, and I, and I speak of Hollywood as an industry, you know, as an industry town, it is completely self-perpetuating, it is a vacuum, mm-hmm. okay? How else to explain, in, in our lifetime, two Volcano movies, two Christopher Columbus movies, two Robin Hood movies, two Asteroid Hurtling Towards the Earth movies, two Truman Capote movies, two, in the same, basic, you know, basically in the same 12-month period, Major studios, you know, spent a lot of money releasing two movies, you know, basically about the same fucking subject. So what? All of a sudden, volcanoes were hot and that f- year. And, and oh, not, shit. not to mention oh, that four Uwe Ball movies a year too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but less is hard. At least he's prolific. You know, it's, yes. listen, it's two, it's 2011. Quality is quantity today. Okay, if you're going to be able to, to to live and eat and all, but like, it's just. Uh, and I realized I was like, no, Christopher Columbus wasn't hot all of a sudden. It wasn't that that. that Everybody in all over the world and in the country was clamoring for a volcano movie or whatever, or a Robin Hood movie. It's because one studio greenlit one, and another one said, oh, fuck, don't we have a, a Robin Hood script in development somewhere collecting dust on a shelf? So they all of a sudden get all excited to develop theirs because they think there's some sort of race because Robin Hood's hot. Robin Hood's not hot. Nobody asked me, but, they, you know, they got excited about it. They made themselves they got themselves all excited about it. We just, we live in Miami, and we were in a time where, where that 20-year nostalgia cycle was coming around, you know, where, like, all of a sudden we were, we were looking at media, too. I mean, we had a business plan where we were like, look what's hot again. And when I say then, I mean, uh, what was hot at that time, when I'm talking about the early to mid-zeros, you know, when we started to make Cocaine Cowboys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Starbase came out, 20th anniversary DVD, outsells E.T. and Jurassic Park on DVD combined. The, hot, the greatest selling video game of all time at that moment, Vice City. You know, Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Michael Mann finally announced that he's going to, you know, his long-awaited Miami Vice, you know, movie adaptation. You know, we didn't know it was, wasn't going to take place in the 80s. We didn't really know it was going to suck. But, you know, but he announced it anyway. You know, he was full steam ahead. They were finally releasing Miami Vice, you know, uh, season one on DVD. So we're like, you know, we saw, we saw it. You know, we're like, this, you know, the 80s, Miami 80s, you know, nostalgia cycle has, 
you know, ha- has come. You know, it's, it's time for this movie. Nobody else got it. Then we made the movie. The movie comes out. All of a sudden, everybody got it. <laughs> you know, it's like we're getting calls from Mark Wahlberg's producing partner. They wanted. You know, we're getting calls from Michael Bay. He's interested in it. And we met with every, You know, we met with everybody who was interested. Uh, made the round, so to speak. You know, said. You know, listen. We're we're two low budget independent filmmakers. We want to work with other low budget independent filmmakers. So we went with Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer. And and no no doubt that was the financially the correct choice. Well, it, it, it was that, and and Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer both live for part of the year in Miami. They both have very significant homes, I should say, in in Miami. Michael Bay was in an episode of Miami Vice for crying out loud. I, I seen that guy. episode. And Bad Boys Two in, is similar in the way that it pretends to be an ode to Miami, in the same way your films do. Uh, <laughs> And I say that well, with, I, I say I, that with half seriousness, in the sense that you make movies that show Florida in the worst light, over yeah. and over. But they are, and over. yeah, yeah. They they are they are our our twisted love letters to our hometown. You know, there, there's a game that Adam Carolla plays on his podcast called Germany or Florida, which like which is the, <laughs> which is the most ridiculous story and like how absurd it is to you know news story, and they have to guess whether uh-huh. Canada, Germany, or Florida. Uh, <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> And the the thing is, it's pretty you know difficult to distinguish you know if you take out the names involved in them. And, and sometimes, and sometimes if you leave the names in, it's indistinguishable uh, right. as well. What is it about Florida specifically? I mean, I know the whole joke about it looking like a penis. Yes, it looks like a penis, and yes, it's by the water. <laughs> looks, I, I was going to say it looks like a gun. There's that too. But what what is there? I mean, it's the strangest combination of redneck, old Jew, retiring Cuban, Hispanic mix. So this is my go-to quote, and it's not mine. Uh, I'm paraphrasing from from somebody. I don't remember who. L.A. is the place you go when you want to be somebody. New York's the place you go when you are somebody. And Miami's the place you go when you want to be somebody else. And that appeal has always attracted the most colorful characters imaginable. Regarding the you, when you were interviewing Bernie Kosar, were you sure that it was not Artie Lang you were talking to? Oh, man. Poor Bernie. He gets so much shit for that. You know, he really does. I'm a huge Bernie Kosar fan. I, I, I think I had I had such stars in my eyes when I met him. I didn't realize how kind of out of it he was. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that that seemed rather apparent once we watched the footage back at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, people, when the, when the movie first came on, every time it's on, people start tweeting like crazy, like, what's wrong with Bernie? You know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, truth of the matter is, um, number one, he's kind of like that anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, like kind of punch drunk. Right. I mean, you know, when he was playing in Cleveland, he got the shit beat out of him. They weren't protecting him very well there. And then he took a lot of, lot of, lot of heavy hits. So he's kind of like that anyway. He's this happy-go-lucky kind of guy. And so he comes in and does this interview. It's a sad story, actually. And, and we're very good friends. Uh, oh, this, uh, is where this, you, this is where you put in the overbearing, weepy music on every, on every, <laughs> on every <laughs> the, moment. It's the, it's the uh, no, actually, I, this, this calls for a piano solo. This okay. is when, uh, like when Howard Schnellenberger leaves the team, we have right. the, the, hur- the Hurricanes hymn solo, uh, you know, piano solo uh, would play now, and uh, a lot of, lot of left hand. And lot now left-hand. Luke Campbell will perform Beethoven's Fifth. <laughs> we did, we had, we had a ballad, we had a ballad. Okay. Luke was, Luke's uh, song was our new fight song, mm-hmm. and the Hurricanes hymn was like the new alma mater. So we had, we, we had both ends covered musically in, in the U. But Bernie comes in, nice as can be, 
friendly, fun, boisterous, obviously a little out of it. He gives us this interview. He might have sat down. We might have talked for almost three hours. The lights were intense. You can see swe- sweating pretty heavily. Uh, he did not sweat nearly as bad as Jeremy Shockey did. And, of course, Drew Rosenhaus, the super agent, sat under those lights for uh, almost an hour, and he did not drop a sweat formed on him. The man is... A robot. A reptilian. He's, he's amazing. And uh, Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what, amazing. you're... I, can we go with a reptile robot? Because I think uh, let's, that, let's 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 go with that. It's Godzillion, which is appropriate considering yes. what's going on in Japan right now. Uh, too soon, no, and no, so you're, you're so not, Bernie, you're, you're not working for Geico. You, you don't have to make jokes. <laughs> what is with those Japanese people? So we do the interview. He he hangs out. He takes pictures with everybody. He's just he had a couple business associates with him who hung out and watched the interview. Not seven days later, Dan Levitard, you know, the big sports writer for the Miami Herald, publishes a front-page story, Bernie Kosar declares bankruptcy. So when he gave us that interview a week earlier, we had not an indication of what was going on, but clearly his life had been financially, anyway, turned upside down, and emotionally, too. Like, a lot of it had to do with his divorce, and he's got two... I mean, the whole story was about him, you know, his two teenage daughters at the house in Weston that they're going to lose, and, I mean, it was... It broke my heart. I was like, so this guy was literally neck deep in that situation when we when we interviewed him, and could not have been nicer, more generous with his time, and clearly a little out of it. I mean, he looked like maybe he had a long night. And like I said, he showed up at like 10 o'clock in the morning with his business advisors. Pretty, and, and it was a pretty far drive from where he lived. So they, they might have been up all night, you know, like crunching numbers or doing the books. Or what. I mean, I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but I do know a week later it was announced that he, that he had, you know, was going through severe financial distress at that time. And so, like I said, it's kind of a End piano solo. Well, but what also, it's what's interesting is, you know, based on that you said the divorce, and I think of, well, what do athletes do when they, they live their life and they go push it a little too far with the money and then yeah. they get a divorce? They can't do anything. Actors, you know, that's why you get stuff like Ben Kingsley and Blood Rain. You know, he's got to pay for the divorce. <laughs> well, what's, what's funny about that, uh, Bernie was always very, Bernie graduated from UM, I think it was business, uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, he was a bright guy. He was always considered one of the really bright, you know, former athletes. Uh, he was very successful in real estate and various other ventures. So he was considered one of the really good and and solid and responsible ones. The divorces, man, are killer. Are killer. In fact, wonderful segue. We're doing a new ESPN movie, mm-hmm. an untitled ESPN movie about the intersection of big money and sports. How sports became such a big money business. How the money got trickled down essentially by way of collective bargaining to the players and how and this this recent phenomenon or not even recent phenomenon of professional athletes generating serious revenue over a career and then going broke and losing it so that that's actually our new doc our follow-up to the U that we're working on for uh, espn now and that should be out late this year early next and is it one of the 30 for 30 things or that it's not 30 for 30 is over the fab five piece in last December was the end of the, the 30 for 30 series. That was, that was their 30th season, okay. ESPN on the air, so that was the end of that. Well, I thought they had stretched that thing out over like two or three years because it was so so such a huge production. With oh, they, they, they did. It, it took them, basically it took them from 09 until, t- like fall of 09 was the start of their 30th year. You know what I mean? Because so, so, they went on the air in the fall of, of 79. 
so fall of 09 was the 30th season. So and so by December of 2010, they had gone through all the 30 for 30s. And how, so that's how that long it took. How are the 30 for 30s structured? Like you know, financed and and since obviously you've got to play by TV rules, you can't have cursing. Now it's not like you have a lot of cursing in the other movies, but it's there. Yeah, and you can't really discuss certain subjects on basic cable. Well, I mean, you could, but they don't want you doing it. Did, well, they, did they ask you to simplify the material? They let me you tell like, you about. Let me tell you about this because ESPN. I think probably because they're parent company, because they're Disney. Mm-hmm. People uh, assume that they're going to be real sticklers and they're going to be uh, real difficult. Could not have been further from the truth. Uh, I have no qualms in telling you if you know if someone is difficult or not. I, I'm, you know, but. ESPN Films and the fo- and the, and then the the folks at ESPN that we worked with were the absolute dream. I think part of it had to do with the fact that they were working on thirty movies at the same time, mm-hmm. and even though some of them were just an hour long, it was still thirty different filmmakers in thirty different cities. You know, not necessarily thirty, but you know, in different places around the country. You know, doing their own stories, and and so I mean, these and, and ESPN Films is actually a pretty small division of ESPN. Those guys worked their asses off. Major studios don't release 30 movies in a year, you know, or produce 30 movies in a year. And these guys with this small team busted their asses because they had this this vision of this 30 for 30 series that did so much for so many, you know, independent documentarians because it gave us all work, you know, <laughs> for, for a year. They basically let us do our own thing because the whole mandate and the whole you know, declaration of 30 for 30 was, you know, these 30 different filmmakers telling sports stories of the big sports stories of the last 30 years that ESPN's been in existence that these filmmakers have a personal, some personal connection to. And so they stuck with that mandate, and they, they let us have at it. And really, with the exception of standards and practices, like you said, we actually, we had cursing, but we had to, you know, drop it out or bleep it out. But with the exception of standards and practices... And of course, fact checking. We had to we had to hire a fact checker. We had to we had to. There was no fair use. We had to license all of you know the material, you know the archival footage and the sports footage and the material and everything, which is not how we would normally operate, to tell you the truth. But beyond that, so beyond the delivery and the standards and practices, they they were not ballbusters on anything, anything. They were. I mean, it was not. You know, they, and they were just trying to. You know, we had never done a TV doc before you know we had always you know we never with commercials and building acts and try you know and and, and you know uh, trying to hook everybody in at the beginning you know we we cooking cowboys was popular on Showtime but it wasn't made for Showtime you know so right but we, but you you're probably well aware that most people will see your movies on cable or on DVD absolutely and so we definitely try to grab you early if we can and or at least let you know that this is what the movie's about if this is not for you then you then you can tune out now but you know we 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 were crafting that you had a bit of a slower start in an early cut of the movie and it was it was John Dahl it was one of the guys at ESPN films who said uh, guys what about your Luke song what about you know what about the, the you know doing an opening credits segment here and we're like absolutely let's do it it's not that we weren't going to do it but it was not in an early cut it was the the guys with the expertise in in, in crafting programming specifically for television well here was the other thing too is that we were it, we were it was being designed also for a very specific moment in time because we had the time slot immediately following the Heisman trophy ceremony in December of 09. So they were like, we, we've, got the, we've got this live event audience. We want them to know, what, you know, we're going right into it from directly from the Heisman. We want to grab people right away. 
and we're like, shit, yeah, never, never really thought about it like that necessarily. I mean, of course, you want to grab people right away, but we had a little bit of a mellow start, you know, before we kind of rocketed, you know, rocked out into it. And so they, they, they said that, and, and I mean, shit, we, at, at that moment, we were the highest rated documentary in ESPN's uh, history. And then we got, we got our asses kicked by that Fab Five doc. <laughs> which had the same time slot after the Heisman. Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't the fact. First, we got our asses kicked by uh, SMU, which could not have been better timed because here you had the fucking Heisman Trophy ceremony of Cam Newton winning, whose whole story is about money, 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 and then you have the SMU story, who the subtitle of that movie was like the best team money could buy. I mean, they could. They were so brilliant. Uh, ESPN at programming these movies. You know what I mean? As far as the time slots went and what the lead-ins were. And they were so good at that and, and crafted such a, you know, such a great strategy and a great vision. The 30 for 30 thing, we weren't even a part of the 30 for 30 series when we first, well, did we you, first when they, did you they picked it, up the movie. Did you pitch it to them or how did it work? I mean, yeah, we pitched, we pitched the movie to them. They loved it. We did a contract. It took several months to, to paper. Uh, then we started work and less than a year into the the production, we get a call, we're about to announce this 30 for 30 series. Okay, what the hell is that? This is what it is. We're like, that's pretty cool. They're like, you're one of the 30. <laughs> we're like, shit, yeah. Well, why <laughs> did you, they were, why'd you pitch it to they, them? I mean, that's that's what I'm curious about. Because obviously, why? You, you, yeah, you weren't thinking necessarily that, oh, ESPN is where we make TV movies. Oh, no, ESPN Films was already, they had already done a couple really cool docs. No, 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 I, I, I agree with that, but the notion that you would pitch to them as opposed to HBO or Showtime or, you know, smaller studios like, say, Roadside or whomever would put out a movie of, of, of that type. Oh, I don't, think, I don't think any of the guys you just mentioned would have made the you. I don't, honestly, I don't think any of them would have made that movie. I, I think that... Well, didn't HBO the... do Harvard beats Yale? Oh, HBO Sports is one thing, but they do everything in-house. Okay. That's why they have the same narrator, you know. <laughs> well, Lee F. Schreiber, he's got to eat. Yeah, exactly. That everything's produced in house. They don't. They don't really take outside pitches, uh, okay. you know, and pick up sports docs that way. So we knew it was really ESPN, I guess Fox Sports, but they're just a series of kind of you know a network. Uh, you know, they're they're like they're a, affiliates. A, you know, they're hundred. Yeah, they're affiliated. Lo exactly, a local affiliate, a network of local affiliates. So that's what. Thank you. Um, they, uh, you know, so they really that wasn't really gonna going to work out. So we knew it was ESPN films or bust. By bust, I meant, you know, we could always, because, you know, there's, there's different ways that we finance the projects. One is we do it uh, independently. You know, we, we make them on spec, uh, so to speak. You know, we get investors, private investors and private equity, and we, and we produce the movies. And, and another way is we go directly to a buyer, like ESPN. Uh, we're doing a uh, feature doc, the first ever feature doc for Bloomberg Television. And, uh, you know, they basically, we pitch it, they buy it outright. The, uh, we've started to begin to shoot things on spec, you know, put together trailers or reels or start to edit the movies and then uh, either go to a buyer or a um, put together pri private financing, you know, after we've already really self-finance. That's what I'm, you know, really, really on spec. Now, though, we, we, we had this output deal with Magnolia, who are essentially our distribution partners. So we that's taken a lot of the spec or guesswork out of the business. So when we go Do they to, have when we first go, look? Is that, is that how that works? I mean, it's, 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 it's almost the other, other way around where, where we kind of have first look. A, a mutually beneficial arrangement with them on basically any project that we have. We're a big fan of their, you know, collapsing windows, ultra VOD model, and they have a variety of models. I mean, Square Grouper is a pretty 
crazy distribution model. What, what are they doing with that? They're not doing the. I thought. I think I saw it on HCNet schedule, so I figured it. Yes, yeah, Square Grouper uh, had its world premiere at South by Southwest. Right. It's been on a college and film festival tour uh, ever since. Mm -hmm. I mean, last week I think last week, last week I think it had thirty screenings across the country. Last week, probably about the same this week. And then there's going to be the theatrical run consists of. One week at Cinema Village in Greenwich Village in New York, which is why we're here today doing this press day. Okay. And Wait, that's, one week... Hold on one second, because all right, I'm I'm grew up in New York and I went to the Cinema Village all the time. Are they sticking oh, yeah? you in that forty person theater that they always? Oh, win? I'm sure that I'm sure that's the, that's the house we have. Okay, because I've uh, seen I saw hundreds of movies that you that you'd be like, really? You saw it in a theater in that <laughs> one forty seat theater? I saw Canadian Bacon. <laughs> I saw, yeah. oh, homage, I saw, like, things you wouldn't believe, like the number of Canadian movies I must have seen. Like... Yeah, this is, I'm certain, certain, in fact, I, I, when I say certain, I mean that I don't know it, I don't know it for sure, they didn't tell me, but I would bet money, I'm so, I'm so sure. It's opening Friday, the 15th, this Friday, and playing, you know, one week, so till Thursday, uh, the 21st. On Tuesday... 419, 420 Eve, as we call it here, it comes out on DVD. And then on 422, Friday, the day after it leaves the Cinema Village, it will be available on your uh, on VOD, on your cable box. So, <laughs> and on that same day, Friday 422, we'll have the world premiere of our next movie at uh, an opening at the Tribeca a Film Festival. So, from one to the next, from one to so, the next. It's, that's a little odd that they do that, but I guess they'll make... Well, can they make money touring at festivals? Because one of the reasons people put money, you know, try to get their movie into festivals is to sell them. But if somebody already bought them, then what's the point? Yes, it's it's uh, word of mouth. It's uh, trying to get, especially the college tour, trying to get it in front of people who who will appreciate it and and hopefully say uh, nice things about it to uh, other people when it becomes available. That's the other thing is that you know you drum up goodwill, you know, they spend money, the distributor spends money to publicize and market the uh, and advertise the movie, and then, of course, you make no fucking money. Right. Uh, an independent, a theatrically released independent uh, documentary. Mm -hmm. So, then what happens? Then you're going to wait two, three, four months for the thing to come out on, on DVD, and then what? You have to spend money all over again right. to raise awareness and visibility. Everybody's already given you any reviews or publicity that they're going to give you on the theatrical, so no one's doing, you know, no one's doing it again. Having had a theatrical kind of quote unquote legitimizes your release a little bit more. Um, you'll get more reviews, but I don't really think that New York film reviewers are necessarily going to be the people who are going to appreciate this movie. I mean, this is this is a movie that should be sold at you know at Outdoor World. It's people who buy Jimmy Buffett albums. It's not people who go to the Cinema Village per se. Right. You know. Uh, so, but regardless, I mean, it does help well, the cinema, uh, generate... Well, let's not pretend the Cinema Village is all that classy. I saw Mortal Kombat there, so... No, okay, my, my bad. I, I kind of meant film forum, I guess. You and, know, it's not for the film. I saw Street Fighter there, so, you know. Are you sure the Van Damme? The Street Van Fighter? Damme. I saw, the, I saw that at an opening uh, midnight scene. shit. At the Cinema Village? Yes. Holy shit. Well, I'll tell you that. I, I hope that, that, that people show up for, uh, at least 40 people will <laughs> yes. show, show up for Square Grouper. Oh, I think you'll do you'll, you'll you'll do a little better than that. I'm going to say maybe sixty-five over the whole week, the whole, over oh, the whole day. That would, that would be awesome. But I, I'll be, be awesome. honest and say that that I don't tend to review a lot of the Magnolia stuff because there's no point because <laughs> because the movie is on DVD 
very quickly. Nobody goes to see them in the theater at all. Right. They do right. no business. So that's one of those things where yeah. I'm like, I don't even understand why you're bothering. Like, why have PR people on this? Why, you know, do any of these things? Nobody goes. There's a lot of movies in which critics, more critics have seen it than people. And Magnolia yeah. is a lot of the, has a lot of those titles. Yeah, well, this is, this is a just a matter. It's a loss leader is right. what it is. It drives VOD. Mm-hmm. It drives DVD. It's, that's what, I mean, like, what do you think? We needed to, we needed to go to the Motion Picture Association of America and get a rating? No, the only reason to do that is for retailers and for VOD. Right. If you're an unrated movie, there's all sorts of issues and restrictions that come with VOD placement and retail placement. So so all of this is uh, effectively a loss leader and strategy for, for home video and Mm -hmm. VOD. That's exactly that's exactly what it is. They they, 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 they listen. It, it, it's it's experimental, and it takes someone with the uh, the balls and the capital of Mark Cuban to take on this experiment. But we're game for that. There's really no no money in in, in theatrical documentaries. I mean, Alfred consumes all of his media streaming on his iPad. Mm-hmm. I mean, he lies on his couch. He's got a fucking forty eight screen you know flat screen TV in front of him, and he lies on his couch with his fucking with his iPod. I mean, I can rather. I mean, like, I'm like, that's how you, I'm, and he, and he streams Netflix. There, he also streams Netflix on his, his Blu-ray player, not on his TV. But, like, he, it's just ever he lives on that, that friggin' iPad. Alfred has not been to the movie theater. I don't even know in how long. And I've been to the movie theater, but I go to the, the press screenings. I go to the advanced screen. I, I don't pay to go to the, to go to the theater. Well, no, you, you, should, you shouldn't have to. I mean, I have not paid one cent to see a movie since 2004. And you're a film lover. Right. So, Michael, so who is paying to go, uh, to, <laughs> to, go to the theater to see a movie? I, I'm, this no, is the well, problem. I'm just a stereotypical Jew, though. I know how not to spend money. So. Now, now, you, know, you know how to avoid paying to go to the movies. And, but who would want to pay for that experience anyway? I don't blame, I don't begrudge anyone not wanting to schlep to the theater and, and, and fork over. It took a lot of fucking money to go to the movies these days. Right. A lot of money. And there was not an experience there. And the value is not commensurate with the, you know, with the experience. And the, the and, price the, and, point, and the texting problem is way worse than you might think it is. Actually, part of the reason why I go, I don't know how they police through your press screenings. Because some of the press screenings I go to are not just like, I don't make the morning ones, so it's not just straight media. Mm-hmm. It's like the advanced screen, you know, word of mouth screenings and right. radio no, stations. No, they, they're serious. They give you announcements. They do they do oh, yeah. checks. They, got, they, got, they hire private security. Mm-hmm. And they tell you, there will be no warning. We see the light. This guy, it's always like, you know, some seven-foot dude, you know, who looks like he's, like, from WWE and in, a, in, a, you know, in a black suit. And they're always like, if he sees the light go on, there will be no warning, you will be ejected from, from the theater. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, shit, like, this is a way to go to the movies. You don't pay. They actually are concerned with the quality of, of the movie-going experience. And no, they're I, not. I can do no, that. See, that, that's, that part's not true. They're not, because there are often technical problems, and they don't care to fix them. Well, that's true. I mean, they don't know how to do you know, but that's, that's the theater, though. It's usually the publicity people that are handling, like, theater security and shit like that, but they don't know what to do with the projector. I mean, it's 2011, Adam. We, we have film projectors. We right. have fi- film, fi- film gets jammed, and the bulbs burn the emulsion on the film. Like, it's 2011. Are you shitting me? Well, they're we converting to as projectors? many... They're converting to as many 4Ks as they can, but that's not cheap, I know. so... I know it's not cheap, and especially when they, when they build these Googleplexes, you know, with 67 screens in a shopping mall, uh, I, I know it gets pricey. Well, if it still exists, and I don't know, this it was in college, the only smaller theater than the Cinema Village is one in Boston in a mall. 
in the Copley Mall. So maybe you can premiere your movie there too. <laughs> that one was about so, 25 to 30 seats. Gotta, gotta open in New York. So we're opening in New York, we're opening in Miami, mm -hmm. and then everybody who hears about it, you know, can get it on Netflix, can get it on Amazon, can get it at Walmart or Target, wherever, you know, wherever, wherever they, Best Buy, wherever they still sell physical goods, mm -hmm. physical media. And, um, and BitTorrent. And, and, and in fact, I would venture a guess if you obtained a DVD screener that it's already available on BitTorrent. Oh, yeah, sure. And what's funny is that the way they act like we're the ones uploading it. When all that shit's always internal. Oh, absolutely. Listen. Oh, dude. I gotta tell you. We, on Cocaine Cowboys 2, mm -hmm. Alfred, we, we kept that shit in house. We didn't even go into an online after the, the, boot, the bootlegging problem. Well, I call it a bootlegging problem. But I, you know, it ultimately was, you know, I think, very helpful marketing uh, our movie, Cocaine Cowboys 1. We just wanted to, we wanted Cocaine Cowboys 2 to hit the streets when we released it. Mm -hmm. We knew we knew it was going to be bootlegged. We just didn't want it to be months in advance, some early cut. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I'm like, let them bootleg the finished product for fuck's sake. Mm -hmm. So we we kept it in house. There was no online. We did it online, but we did it in house rather than going to any outside studio. I know the first uh, the first version that leaked. I'm almost positive I know what the source was, and it was a it was a house. It was a post house mm -hmm. in in Miami. Yeah, it, al it, it, it. it always is, and that's why that's all that stuff about piracy and trying to dissuade people. I'm like, you're the ones doing it, and you're the yeah, ones so getting all the things. Absolutely, yeah. and, and and so we and listen, we knew it was going to happen. I just said, I said, can we make it happen as late as possible? You yeah. know, you know, and so. Uh, Magnolia Home Video, Alfred's on a conference call, just about to do the sale. We're really kind of winding down. They're like, we're going to send retailer screeners out. Mm -hmm. And Alfred's like, please don't do that. Magnolia Home Video dude's like, no, you don't have to worry about these guys. We stamp it. We put trailers on it. We put the Magnolia logo, blah, blah, blah. And these are the guys who work. They, they, they watch it for the first thing. He goes, we have to. We have to show it to them because they're a retailer. They're our buyers. Mm -hmm. He said, and they don't have any interest in bootlegging it. He said, because they're the ones who are going to sell it in their, in their stores. You know, Best Buy buyer. He goes, and Alfred says, he goes, I'm not worried about, you know, some, you know, 40-year-old dude or whatever. He goes, I'm worried about his 15-year-old son or his 12-year-old son right. who comes in and sees the DVD in the trash can or whatever. And read. He goes, if that's even how that happens, he goes, I'm simply, he goes, it's just not a good idea to do it now. And so they did it anyway, and all of a sudden we get a call. Yo, 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 I just bought Cocaine Cowboys 2 in the men's room from the bootleg boy at the strip club in Miami. And I said, how does it begin? It says, oh, it begins with a bunch, it says Magnolia, and then there's a bunch of trailers, a bunch of previews. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's the retail screener. <laughs> right. I was, I was like, because Alfred said, Alfred said to them, he goes, it's the digital era. He said, if you send out those screeners, he said, you guys have released the movie. Right. He said, the movie is distributed. He goes, I'll bust your balls later so that we get a, our cut from every copy of that movie that, that winds up getting bootlegged because you guys distributed it the second you, you send out a digital copy of your movie, you know, on a disc, mm -hmm. on whatever. You have released your, your, your product. Okay, if it can be digitally duplicated, you have released it. Right. It has been distributed. Now, you should only be lucky at that point that people care enough. That's the problem. Now, Albert said, he goes, his motto is, uh, you know, that the greatest threat facing people in, in, in entertainment, music business, the movie business, he goes, is not piracy. He says it's anonymity. When you're in a world with infinite entertainment options, as we're essentially in now, he said, how do you get people to cut through the bullshit? That remind, I wrote a piece once on film festivals called The Art of Respectable Anonymity, which was basically about that, <laughs> the, the notion that, 
you're you're respectable because nobody's heard of you. Everyone loves you because nobody knows who you are. Like it's a coveted product while while it's at a festival, even though uh-huh. in three weeks when it goes straight to DVD, nobody gives a shit anymore. Right, right. But we've been trying to find that happy balance between, you know, art and commerce and, mm-hmm. and telling stories that we, that we love to tell and also trying to make a living doing it. And that's why, you know, the company is 10 years. This is 2011 is our 11th year. So, and I told you, the first 10 years... We released five movies, five feature docs. Mm-hmm. And in our 11th year, this year, we're releasing five feature docs. Now, what was the decision behind the shortened title on Square, Gro- on, on Square Grouper? Because well, it's, well, it's not a shortened title. They, we, we, add, we added The Godfathers of Ganja. Okay. So it's, it's, a, it's actually the, the decision for an elongated title uh, is, what, <laughs> is what it is. It was, you know, for us, Square Grouper... It's well, not for us. Square Grouper is obviously an inside baseball, you know, a little too inside baseball. But you do mention it in Cocaine Cowboys. You mentioned it very Yes, brilliant. it does come up absolutely. And, and but so listen, people in the know will know mm-hmm. what what it means. Everybody else will go, "What the fuck is Square mm-hmm. Grouper?" And w- when we were brainstorming with uh, our investors and you know, our, our EPs and 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 our distribution partners at Magnolia, it was like, "Okay, we need a we need a sub." title that tells you what this movie is uh is about and a, a bale of hash no it doesn't work exactly bale of hash yeah and then the godfathers of ganja is cool right have you seen the cover art for canada by the way uh i have not i haven't even go seen to, the subtitle except in a, in a in a festival program go to amazon mm-hmm. dot dot what is it dot ca yeah is the canada yeah dot go to amazon dot ca and look at the cover art that the canadian distributor is uh is using uh, I'm assuming it's because it's bad because the Canadian cover arts tend it's, to be terrible. It's I, it's it's not bad. It's hilarious. Okay. It's how I'm. That's the adjective I'm using to describe it. Okay. Or or I suppose to be punny, hilarious. Right. It's hilarious yes. is what it is. Okay. So uh, one of the quotes that that seems to define your movies is uh, someone says uh, that was our downfall, accepting outsiders. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is that, a, is that a mantra of sorts? Certainly wasn't Everglades City. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this is a, a, a fishing village of 30, 40 years ago, this was a town of about 500 people. Mm-hmm. And today, it's still a town of about 500 people. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary in America today. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of, one of two things happened to towns in America. Either they blew up, you know, by, in terms of population by way of development, gentrification, or... Places like, you know, like Detroit, where like a manufacturing base dried up, people split. You know, they went to look for jobs. But this place, <laughs> the population remained uh, pretty consistent. And there's still the five, the same five last names <laughs> that, that have always been in town are there, still there. Mm-hmm. And to this day, do not really accept or trust outsiders, especially the media, because they felt they got burned. You heard how they talked about Mark Potter, you know. Um, They feel like they got burned by Mark Potter, which isn't entirely true or or accurate, by the way, because Mark Potter came to town in response to print articles that had already been written in the Miami Herald and the the press out of uh, of Naples, the west coast of Florida. So it was already in the media. I don't know that that they're big newspaper readers in Everglades City. So when when Mark Potter came to town at his TV story, and then a year later, the big bust happened, the first big bust. It was actually a series of busts in Everglades City over the course of the decade, over the course of, uh, the first one was 1982, last one was in 1989. 
there's about four four total, I think. Operation Everglades One, Operation Everglades Two, Operation Peacemaker. I can't remember the other one. Operation um, Endgame, Operation Mindcrime. There there are entire departments of the federal government, uh, law enforcement divisions that that only come up with these with these uh, with with the names of these operations and the titles of uh, air, airport softback thrillers. Now in in, um, <laughs> in Square Grouper, the 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 black tuna section. It's kind of vague at times, but I guess because you have to let them, like, like they didn't want to incriminate themselves because there seems to be a lot of circumstantial stuff. Like, we never figure out why, how the government's able to prove that they have a million pounds or bales or whatever of weed. They, they didn't. They were never, they were never caught with, with any weed because they were ultimately the first folks in marijuana who ever prosecuted under RICO, mm-hmm. uh, a RICO charge. And so that's simply what they, when it came down to, to, to evidence and, and the case, all the government was attempting to uh, prove was CCR, continuing criminal enterprise. Uh, so it wasn't really about uh, quantity so much as it was the, the kingpin being able to prove, uh, reach their burden of evidence under the kingpin right. uh, statute. I, I, do, I do, I'm sorry, I do want to finish this thing about Everglades City, though, and, and, and trusting outsiders. When we first went there, now listen, they're, they're they're tourist friendly. A lot of the business business there these days is you know you saw on the end at the end of every lake city a lot of people are airboat captains, you know, uh, fishing boat captains. They do private charters and stuff like that, and and you can have a drink with them and and they'll tell you tell you a smuggle smuggling story or two uh, when they get you know when they get loose. But you know when you start asking questions and asking too many questions, <laughs> they definitely they don't definitely don't take you kindly to that. And and I got the feeling the first time I went there that this might not happen. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the second you talk about, like, that's a great story. You know, like, you know what we should do? We should bring a camera. In fact, two cameras, a dolly, a generator, mm-hmm. <laughs> put some lights on some, on some stands here, and we should, we should film you, uh, you know, telling that story. I mean, the, the thing you say that, everybody's like, whoa, what the fuck? You know, and so I'd gone out with, with our... First, our full-time researcher, who became a producer very quickly on this project, uh, Lindsay Snell, and she she went to um, Fordham Law, wound up with us in Miami, and she is brilliant, a great producer, and it turns out a beautiful, at the time, 24, she was 24, 25-year-old woman, and so I happened to notice that the local men took a shine to her. And Lindsay Wood, over, at first they thought she was a narc. They thought she was a, I don't know what they thought she was looking for, but they, at first they thought she was, they told her that later. But she also has a wooden leg, not a real wooden leg, has a hollow leg is what I meant to say, and can drink. I don't think she can drink any of these guys under the table, but she could keep up enough that they were duly impressed. And she spent the next six months, almost every single weekend, in Everglades City, at Lebo's Rock Bottom Bar, because that's like the locals hang out, you know? It's not really, one, it's not one of the more tourist-oriented uh, bars there with the locals. And they took, uh, you know, and, and they basically adopted uh, Lindsay, and she gained their trust. And she goes back there to this day. It's not like we, it was like a hit-and-run operation. We went there for dinner just a few weeks ago. We had a shoot on the Bloomberg TV project in Fort Myers, and we took the long way home around the state just so we could go to Everglades City for dinner and hang out with everybody. L- they adopted Lindsay as one of their own, and, and what happened one night, 10 days before we had planned to go there, I and mean, the 10 days before we did go there with our crew, she didn't tell me about this. Lindsay didn't tell me about this until we were there in the middle of our shoot. 
she was at the bar. Well, first of all, all sorts of crazy shit happened in the bar. She was right. She was right next to a bar fight. She got blood on her face on her drink in her drink. And so, ten days before we're supposed to be there, this girl, a local girl comes in drunk and raging and knocks over Lindsay's bar stool and says, you know, what, you know, you know, who the fuck are you? You know, what do you know about my granddaddy, bitch? And pulls out a knife. Yes, in, in an effort to, or at least a threatening to stab Lindsay. And the, the, to their credit, the, the, the local men grabbed the girl, literally dragged her kicking and screaming out of the bar, and uh, I guess someone took her home and gave her a talking to or what for, but, yeah, so Lindsay basically almost got stabbed for hanging out there and asking too many questions and about the cameras and everything, and, and she didn't tell me, because I think she she thought, she knew that I'd, I'd probably cancel the shoot, because I, I wouldn't want to put the crew in, in danger, and not certainly not put Lindsay in any further danger at that point, and she didn't want her hard work to go to waste, and so she, literally in the middle of the shoot in Everglades City two weeks later, she told me. Oh, wow. uh, but that 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 had happened to her, yeah. So, with the the first section of Square Grouper, there were several things that amused me, such as I guess you know, yes, weed does cause you to lack motivation, but it doesn't suggest that you should never shave again. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's that's part of the problem, you know, with like marijuana. Uh, you know, uh, I think the, the marijuana decriminalization or legalization movement is that it, it's it's almost an aesthetic problem. You know, Cheech and Chong are, you know, sort of the hippies are kind of the, the, the faces of, of weed. And so it, it, it's, it's kind of synonymous with being unkempt, you know. Right. <laughs> so that's a problem in, with, with that movement in general. But dude, these guys, they were a different beast, man. I mean, the, the Coptics, their religious views are on par with the most conservative Christians. Right. So, I mean, it's Jesus camp. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, to bring up a previous thread, they are so into God. They believe that that you know, ganja, that herbs are are the sacrament of God, are God, God's holy creation, and they will huff it. I mean, they weren't even they they felt it was sacrilegious to like take tokes or hits off joints because the goal with with smoking ganja was not to get stoned. That's not the goal to get your buzz on. That was that's not it. The goal. Is to you know say it's to sacrament you know uh, give your sacrament to God so they were they would they would, they had those chalices you know that they would smoke and they just like chimneys you know huffing and huffing and huffing uh, away and and so everything you know they, they didn't believe in in cutting their fingernails or their toenails or cutting their hair or masturbation or oral sex the sex was strictly for uh, for you know for for procreation well hold on um, a second you, you yeah. they're, if they're not cutting their hair and they're not cutting their nails oral yes. sex would be a terrible idea. <laughs> maybe maybe the two are, are 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 intentionally synonymous rather than unintentionally mm. synonymous with each other. <laughs> Perhaps that's the case. Yeah, and I I I concur. With it, your is it a coincidence? You know, with, with their sort of very strident religion, is it a coincidence that they're that there's such a big movement of Scientology in Florida, or is that huh. that's clear water? That's what, actually I'm sorry they had a. Their farm wasn't too far from, from where the mothership is going to uh, blast off in Clearwater, uh, Florida. So the topics are, you know, it's just, listen, Florida's no stranger to uh, cults. Right. Coptics weren't the first cult in Florida. They certainly weren't the last. Okay. Um, oh, and if you ever cast a fiction version of this, if you're going to do fiction versions of Cocaine Cowboys, um, I have suggestions. Tom Noonan as Brother Love. 
Ah, that's pretty good. Tommy Smothers is the tuna skipper. Ah. <laughs> and Randy, yeah, that's great. Noonan is outstanding. That's spot on, though. Yeah, he, on. he looked just like him to me. So yeah. now that you've um, made it, you know, you're sort of going backwards in terms of um, the strength of drugs, like, you know, you cocaine, weed. Ah. And is the next documentary taking place in Miami going to be about something like uh, candy cigarettes? Ah, I love candy cigarettes, by the way. I always try to stock up up on them when I'm in town. I go to Economy Candy on the uh, Lower East Side, get them by the case. Seriously. I'm about the little white, you're about the white sugary ones. Those are the ones that I like, the white sugary ones. So what um, you're saying is, yes, there will be a documentary on candy cigarettes. Yeah, it wouldn't be my, but our next documentary, the online one, is um, helping the ante a little bit. It's about MDMA. It's about ecstasy in, uh, in Manhattan uh, in the 90s. Do you know that the very first bar mitzvah slash bat mitzvah I was ever at was at, was at the limelight? No, it wasn't. It, Are you what? kidding? I'm absolutely not kidding. In the, in, they had a bar mitzvah party in the Catholic Church. Yes. That is brilliant, by the way. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yes. Like, 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 wish I would have thought of it when I was 13, kind of brilliant. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how, it just seemed like, you know, because I went to a school with kids with too much money most of the time. Yeah. And so that was a way to spend it. Um, yeah, that is that is certainly a way. Yes. And I thought I was mystified by it. It was one of those bar mitzvahs where, like, you didn't really know the person, but they invited everyone in the class so as not to alienate anyone. <laughs> yeah. You you kind of that was always very weird. Yeah. You know, and then and then it was like, but then it was like, I don't know this person. I'm just going to give them thirty six dollars because that's an increments of eighteen, and it would be weird to give them a lot more because I don't actually know them that well. And, right. And it, it, that was always a very awkward thing when you started getting invited. And then, well, they invited me to their bar mitzvah, mm -hmm. so I guess I have to invite them to my bar mitzvah. Holy shit. Maybe that's why they invited me to their bar mitzvah, so that they would be invited to my... It's like, it, it, was, very, it, was, it was a time of great mistrust. So I, I saw on your website that you are a film critic slash professor. What exactly does that entail in your well, specific case? There is a... Um, two separate things. There is a, uh, a school uh, in downtown Miami called uh, Miami International University of Art and Design mm -hmm. that has a, a film program and a, uh, a buddy of mine, John Moss, who actually produced and co-wrote, I believe, a very fine film called Curdled, which Miramax released many years ago because uh, it, was a, it was a thesis film of John's and his uh, partner, Rep. I, 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 I know the whole story. I've okay, actually, well, there you go. So, the, so the John, commentary, I've listened to the whole thing. Oh, there you go. Well, then John was the head of the, the, the chairman, the chair, mm -hmm. department head, whatever they call them, of, of the film department there. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to, oh, actually, I was going to go do like a seminar kind of a thing mm -hmm. there at the school. And he asked me to... He goes, what would it take for you to teach a regular class? And I said, well, he said, it could only be like one, you know, it'd have to be at night. It could only be once a week. And so he gave me this class. I, I teach documentary filmmaking and independent producing Monday night from 6 to 10 p.m. at uh, Miami International University of, of Art and Design. So it's basically, it's a one four-hour class, one night a week, every Monday night. It just kind of stuck. Obviously, I'm out of town. You know, I have to send some, some subs in, but it sits... 
You know, Spike Lee's got his uh, NYU thing. Right. And I've got my, my, my Jami International University of Art Edelheim. And you can both uh, teach that whole, let's cover the whole thing with music. We will uh, uh, contribute to the next uh, generation of, of uh, filmmakers who will cover uh, every frame of their, of their movies with, uh, with score. As Patton, Oswalt, really as Patton Oswalt said, if, it, if there's a, a moment of silence, the rape goblins will get you. <laughs> Yes. <laughs>